0: Well, we have been working our way through the book of Ephesians, and if you're new to Calvary, one of the things that we do is we take a book of the Bible, and we start in the beginning, and we start working our way through teaching as we go, and we go chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So we've been going through the book of Ephesians on Sunday morning, and uh, we're now in chapter four. And if you've been part of the study, then you'll know that it was the first three chapters that Paul lays out the theological foundation, and then from chapters four through six, uh, Paul lays out the practical application. And so we've been working through chapter four, and uh, in chapter four, when Paul began uh, this chapter, he began talking about how we relate to one another as believers, as part of the body of Christ, we would say the, the church. And then he turned his attention to talking about spiritual gifts, and we've been talking about that for the last several weeks. And we're going to conclude that section today, but I'm going to pick it up in verse seven just by way of reminder. And in verse seven, he says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, that is when Jesus went back to heaven, uh, he led captive a host of captives. He took those who'd been waiting for the Christ, the Messiah, to come. And uh, so when he came up from the grave and went back to heaven, he took those with him. But then it says, and he gave gifts to men. And uh, so that's gifts that he gave to you and I who are here on the earth and, and uh, that happened when he ascended, went back to heaven. So there on your outline, you'll notice it says, I have a spiritual gift. And this week, I'm not having you fill that out just because I figure you're probably tired of writing that down for so many weeks. So you, you get that one as a, as a freebie. But you have a spiritual gift. And uh, so we've been talking about that. And these gifts, once again, were given when Jesus ascended. He went back to heaven and then he gave spiritual gifts. In verse 11, it says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And so we've been working our way through that list. We're going to conclude that today. But you remember, we took one week and we talked about the first group. He says some he gave as apostles, and we highlighted how that was given after he ascended. And the word apostles there in your outline just means one sent forth. And uh, this would not pertain to the original 12 apostles. This is when he ascended, when he went back to heaven. And so, because of that, we went through all the places in the New Testament where people were called apostles, but it had nothing to do with the original 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. They were just people who were sent out. So we took a week and uh, we talked about that. And we said how in our context, that would pertain probably to church planters and missionaries. Then last week, we talked about prophets. It says he gave some as apostles and some as prophets. And uh, from Thayer's, a prophet just means an interpreter or spokesman for God, one through whom God speaks. And again, this is something he gave as a spiritual gift when he ascended, when he went back to heaven. And so last week, we took a week and we talked about this. That there's only one example in the New Testament of somebody who's actually called a prophet, and we got to look at their ministry and see what prophets do and what they they don't do. And his name was Agabus, and we looked at that. and uh, we, we concluded that by saying, if you go somewhere and somebody says that they are a prophet, uh, you always want to go back and look at Agabus because he becomes the picture or the template of what that gift looks like. And I only say that because there's a, a lot of places that you can go where people will claim to be a prophet and it looks nothing like the New Testament uh, picture that we're given. So we talked about that last week. Now, this week, he says in verse 11, it says, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets and some as evangelists. Now, you might be surprised to find that the word evangelist is only mentioned three times in the entire New Testament. And there's only one person in the New Testament who's actually called an evangelist. And he has what we would say, the gift of evangelism. And there on your outline it's called philip the evangelist and you can read the story he's called philip the evangelist and again he's the only person in the new testament who's actually called an evangelist now because this is a spiritual gift when you look at his life and we're not going to unpack that today but you can you can read the story later you're going to find that there's these places where uh he just knows he has to go talk to somebody and, and uh, they're ready, and, and he's there, and, and God just makes it happen. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 8, you can read the expanded story later. The Spirit said to Philip, join this chariot. And so Philip goes up to the chariot. It's an Ethiopian, and uh, he goes up and begins sharing the Lord, and the man becomes a believer. It's, it's a spiritual gift, and God worked in that way. Now, we don't know how the Holy Spirit spoke to Philip. We don't know if it was audible, if it was something inside of him, but, but he just, the, the Spirit spoke to him. My wife Cheryl has, uh, I, I think this gift will be somewhere and uh, she'll just have the sense that I have to go talk to this person. And she goes, and it's it's always a, a, a wonderful thing where she goes up, and they're ready, and she's ready, and you know, and she just she shares, and and uh, great things happen. And just so you know, this never happens to me, ever, ever, ever. But it happens to her, and I'm amazed by that. So some people are gifted as evangelists, and if you're gifted as an evangelist, it's not really a skill. It's a spiritual gift. Now, we can all be better at sharing our faith. And most of us most of us don't have that particular gift. Some of us do, but most of us don't. Um, so for us, we're like Timothy in the Bible where Paul had to write to him. And he says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. So he, he wasn't supernaturally gifted in evangelism. But he, he could still share his faith with the people around him, uh, just like we can, the people around us, the people at work, the people in our family. And so, but, but it's not, um, and I don't like to use the word, it's just not as natural for us, because it's not natural. It's supernatural when somebody has the gift of evangelism. Some people have the gift of evangelism, and they speak to crowds, and people give their life to the Lord. Other people have the gift of evangelism, and they just know they have to talk to that person, and, and God really uses that. So that's an awesome thing. So I think we all understand evangelism for, for the most part. But I want to give just a couple of quick comments on evangelism and the evangelist. So there in your outline, uh, the word evangelist in the original language is euangelistis. Is probably the closest pronunciation. And it just means a bringer of good tidings. A bringer of good tidings. We'd say good news. So that's what an evangelist does. And uh, in the New Testament, the word preached uh, is the word UNGELIDZO, and uh, that just means to announce good news. In the Bible, the word preach means to announce good news, which is interesting because the word gospel is UNGELION. You see how all these words are related, and gospel just means good news. That's what it means. So the evangelist brings good news. And when, in the New Testament, when they preached, they were sharing good news, and the good news that they shared is gospel, and it's good news. Now, the reason I say this is if somebody is truly an evangelist, and they're operating in that gift, you want to write this down, a true evangelist brings good news, not bad news. It's good news, not bad news. Now, that's important, because some of us grew in a church, grew up in a church environment where... The good news always sounded like bad news, and uh, many of the people I knew have walked away from the faith because what was called good news was really bad news, and they looked on it and said, I can't do it, and they walked away. Well, they were never given the good news. Uh, they just got the bad news. Now, how many of you, if, if, if uh, you know, I, I like to share a little bit about my church background, the weird and wacky and the fun, but how many of you grew up with the screaming evangelists? Anybody here? Yes, you haven't lived until you've sat under a screaming evangelist. But sadly, it was all, you are sinners, you're bound for hell, and, and, it's, and all that is true. But, but uh, they're to bring <laughs> I, I don't know that I would present it that way. But, but the, the, the thing is that it's supposed to be good news, that, that God loved the world, and so he sent his only begotten son. Not that God was so mad at the world. And so it's always good news. So. Um, you know, some present a very angry God, and that that's not who he is. But then we come to, um, and I want to highlight here verse eleven it says he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now you you have apostle prophet, uh, evangelist, pastor, teacher. And there are those who hold that these are five separate gifts and uh, they hold to what's called the fivefold ministry. How many of you have ever heard of the fivefold ministry? Okay. Now, some people that I greatly respect hold to that. I hold to what's called the fourfold ministry that the when it says some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, then it says some as pastors and teachers, that those two go together in one calling, that if you're called to be a pastor, you also have to have the gift of teaching. I'm not alone in this. Every Greek scholar I have ever read on this subject holds to the same thing. Uh, For instance, F.F. Bruce, probably the greatest scholar of the last hundred years. Uh, If he's not the greatest, he's certainly in the top five but on this, he says, teaching is an essential part of the pastoral ministry. It is appropriate, therefore, that the two terms, pastor and teachers, should be joined together to denote one order of ministry. So um, I would hold that it's four uh, four-fold ministry, pastor and teacher is in one calling. Uh, others hold that it's the fivefold ministry. Uh, there's a disagreement there, but but it's not like I would unfriend them on Facebook over this, okay? This is not something that, you know, you'd break fellowship. It's just, you know, a, a different way of seeing it. So I would hold that the pastor and teacher really needs to be uh, both in, in one person. Now, if you were to go to the NIV Life Application Commentary, they like to define this, and you wanna write this down, as teaching shepherds. Teaching shepherds. Now, I'm gonna make a few comments on this. If I were teaching a group of pastors, I would share a whole lot more, um, but I'm just gonna make a few comments on this that I think would be appropriate for us, so it's gonna be very, very brief. When we say pastors, that English word pastors actually comes from the Latin, which would be pastores. And so if you were to read this Ephesians uh, from the Latin Vulgate, the word there would be pastores. But um, the New Testament was written in Greek. So Greek, the word pastors there on your outline is the word poimen, poimen. And uh, it just means a herdsman. And then you want to underline, especially a shepherd. It just means a shepherd just means a shepherd. Now, a shepherd oversees the flock. Um, they love the sheep, and uh, they feed the sheep. They feed the sheep. It's very important. And then Jesus would tell Peter, and we've all heard this story where Jesus says to Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? And it's a fascinating study. But, but uh, there in your outline in John 21, uh, Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep. And there the word for feed is the word Poimeno. Poi main would be sh- to shepherd or pastor, but to feed is poi meno. and the idea is that it all comes from the same same word. One of the things you learn about sheep, and certainly as a pastor, is that sheep have a very limited diet. If you feed sheep outside of the di- diet that they were designed for, they can become very sick, and and and. Uh, it's not a good thing. So the shepherd has to make sure that they're being fed the right diet. Uh, God loves to call his people, you know, the sheep of his pastures. You know, Jesus says, feed my sheep. So God likes to call us his sheep. And one of the things that we find is that just as a sheep has a very limited diet, anything outside of that diet can make them very sick, you and I as the sheep, his sheep, God's people, we have a very limited diet, and our diet is the Word of God. So the role of the shepherd is to be feeding God's people God's Word. And, and uh, without going into a, a, a great dissertation, I'm concerned that as I look across church world, that there is a move away from teaching God's people, God's sheep, the diet that they were designed for, which is God's Word. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we always stick to that. So here on your outline, you want to write down that pastors or shepherds uh, feed by teaching God's word. And so whether that's topically, and some pastors are amazingly gifted feeding God's word topically, or they do it like we do, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, God's God's people, God's sheep, need a good dose of a Bible. They need a good dose of, of God's Word. So that's, that's what we focus in on. Now, there's a lot more that we can say about the role of the shepherd. And um, maybe this is a response from my own church background, which uh, many of you have heard about. But uh, I want to just share with you very quickly our philosophy of ministry here at Calvary and how we, we do ministry. There on your outline, Paul would say it like this. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, and you wanna underline your, your faith, but our workers with you for your joy, for in your faith, you are standing firm. What you notice there is, Paul says, we're, we're, we're there for the sheep. You know, We're there to help you grow and stand firm in, in your faith. And, and uh, what, what I get from that and how we operate, hopefully, is that we're not here to control your life. We're not here to tell you who to marry. We're not here to tell you what job to get or what car to buy. That's not really what we do. Uh, if we can come alongside of you and help you as you stand and grow in your faith, then that's what we want to do. So uh, I'm, I'm going to use an illustration only because this has not happened in our church in some time, so, that, so nobody can say I'm, I'm, I'm aiming it in any way. But let's say, you know, you come to the church and you want premarital counseling. And so we go through that. And uh, at the end of that, you know, one of the pastors says, I don't think this is a really good thing for you. As a matter of fact, you, you really should not marry this person. You should run from this person like you would from a burning building. That's, that's where we're at. And, and so we might share that with you. But if you go, I'm going to marry that person, you know, we don't. We don't stop you. We don't excommunicate you. We we don't, you know, avoid you or ostracize or anything like that. And so if you marry that person, we've come alongside, and if you you take that, great. And if you don't, and let's say it works out. It's a wonderful thing. You know, we'd love to say we really missed it on that. We were so wrong, and uh, we're glad that we're wrong because uh, it's working out great. So with that, we celebrate with you that that happened. That's not what usually happens. Usually what happens is it goes horribly wrong. And so we wanna do things in a way so that even if somebody doesn't take the counsel, at least they know that this was a place where they were loved, they made the decision, but they know that they can come back here and they can get counsel, they can get ministry because of the way that we handled things. Does that make sense? So it's, it's, it's it's your decision at the end of the day we come alongside to help you as you stand firm in, in your faith and as you grow. So we want to love people, and you'll hear us say we love people on the way in, and sometimes we have to love people on the way out, and if we do that right, then maybe at a later time, we'll be able to love them on the way back in again. So that's our philosophy of ministry. Now, I say that because if you grew up in church and you're as old as I am, um, You'll remember back in the 70s, there was this whole uh, movement called the shepherding movement. How many of you remember the shepherding movement? One of you, good. We'll talk after service. But, uh, you know, there was this whole thing about you need to be under authority, you need to be under a shepherd, and they determine if you want to marry this person, then they say, no, then you're out of God's will, you're out of authority, and it was wacky. It was wacky. So we come alongside to, for, to help you in your faith as you stand firm, but uh, we're not here to run your life. I've got 12 kids. I don't have time to run your life. I'm just trying to get through the day. Talk to my wife. She might, she might have some free time. So... <laughs> So here Paul lays out the spiritual gifts, and now he's going to give the goal of the gifts. And this is very simple, goal of the gifts, verse 12, and he says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. So very simply, the goal of equipping the saints for the work of service is to build up the body of Christ, to build up the body of Christ. And what you notice here is that the primary emphasis is not evangelism, but it's, it's, having, it's equipping the saints for the work of service. Now, why is that important? Well, Jesus never says, go ye into all the world and make converts. He says, go ye into all the world and make what? Disciples, disciples. Now, why is that so important? Because disciples will make converts. But converts don't typically accomplish a lot, so the goal is to bring people to the place of maturity so that they will do that. So we equip the saints for the work of service. Here at Calvary we have, I think it's like 70 groups that meet, Uh, it takes about 100 people every service, uh, every every Sunday to to make all of this happen. So we're equipping the saints for the work of service. This is very different then the church that I grew up in, which we had about 80 people, and it was a wonderful church, and it was a wonderful background, but about every three or four years, we would get a new pastor. How many of you come from a church background? Every three or four years, you get a, a new pastor. Okay, and, and so we would do that. So we'd have this list of things that we wanted the pastor to do. We'd say, well, you know, um, we think that you need to be prepared, so we're going to give you seven hours a week to prepare for Sunday morning, and, and then Wednesday night, because you got to teach that, and and then uh, we want you to have this many hours a week visiting the shut-ins because we're not going to do it. So we're going to pay you to do that. And then we want you to have so many hours a week where you're going to counsel, and so you're going to do that. And then on Sunday morning, we all show up and we watch you do your thing. But we, we never really equipped the saints for the work of service. We simply paid somebody else to do the work of service. And when you do that, the church has a very hard time growing because uh, you have one person trying, trying to do it all. So we're very blessed here at Calvary that so many people are being trained up for the work of service. And, and I prefer the work of ministry because that's what it's really talking about. This isn't talking about sweeping and cleaning bathrooms, although that's, that might be part of it. This is ministry that we're talking about. So the goal is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I put verse 13 on your outline, and it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge, and I'm gonna come back to that word, of the Son of God to a mature man. You wanna underline that. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So the result of equipping the saints for the work of service uh, work of ministry, I like to say, is going to be spiritual maturity. Write that down. It's going to be spiritual maturity. Maturity as an individual, and then maturity as a church body, body of believers. So the question then is, what does spiritual maturity actually look like? What, is it, what does it look like? Well, there on your outline, I put spiritual maturity as evidenced by and the first thing we're going to say is going to be Christ-likeness, Christ-likeness, the very last line of verse 13, uh, "To a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ." And so spiritual maturity is going to make us look a lot like Christ. How would he be operating in this situation? And then it says, to we all attain to the unity, unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God." Now if you've been around the Bible, you'll know that knowledge typically in the Bible is the word gnosis, gnosis. But this word is epigenosis. So it's slightly different, slightly different. And this word epigenosis means a precise and correct knowledge, a precise and correct knowledge. So we would say that maturity is gonna be seen, evidenced by, and you wanna write this down, knowing him factually and relationally. Factually and relationally. We need to know him with our head, but we also need to know him with our heart. We need to know him theologically, but we also need to know him intimately. Now that's so important because you're going to come across some people who have an academic or theological relationship with him, but you sort of get the sense that you have all of this head knowledge, but you don't really know him. On the other hand, there are people who are very passionate in their knowledge of him, and, and they love the Lord, but they don't really have knowledge about what's truth and error and sometimes you know they can say and do some things that we might look on and say that it's kind of dumb that's kind of dumb and so you have to have both you have to have the factual and relational um, uh, relationship with him knowing him in that way so spiritual maturity is going to be evidenced by that factional and and, uh, relational and then we're going to find that it's also going to be evidenced by and you want to write this down stability in life and faith, stability in life and faith, and, and they're different. So there in your outline, I put this again on your outline just to highlight a couple of things. Paul says, as a result, we're no longer to be children or immature because the goal is maturity, and here's what immature looks like our children, underline tossed here and thereby waves. And that's all one Greek word. I want to talk about that. Kludonizomehi is uh, how you pronounce it, kind of. And carried about by every wind of doctrine. We want to talk about that. By the trickery, cubia, of people, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. So the first one, the first one talks about tossed here and there by waves, and that's one Greek word. It's, it turns into a phrase, but it's kludonidzomehi. Uh, and, and, uh, I'm pretty impressed with myself that I said that. <laughs> but it's the same word that was used. You remember when Jesus is in the boat and the storm comes, and uh, it says there in your outline, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, which would be kludon, and so that's the stem word from which this comes from. So, so here immaturity is when the storms of life come and the people are just tossed here and there in their faith. They're angry at God, they're mad at God, they're walking away, and and their faith is destroyed. And here's why. Because nobody ever taught them that this isn't heaven. Um, We live in a fallen world, and I don't like it, but sometimes bad things happen to good people in, in a fallen world. I don't like that. But, but when you're mature, it doesn't make you mad at God. It makes you look forward to going to heaven where these things don't happen. But the immature many times will be mad at God because God didn't make it good here. And when God doesn't make it good here, they're, they're blown away. And in their immaturity, what is revealed is that right now, their home isn't heaven because that's not what they're looking for. Their home is here and they're angry at God because it didn't, he didn't make it good here. So the goal for that person is to have them mature <laughs> to the place where those storms of life don't blow them away. Does that make sense? So that's the first part. Now, the second part, and there's two groups here, the, the first part is those who are blown away by the storms of life, um, but the other group, the second part of that verse, it says, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery, and I want to talk about that word, of people, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. And uh, they, they were never taught, they went to church, and they were never taught. And so every wind of doctrine that blows through, they're captivated by, and they're, they're, they're carried off by, it says, they're carried off by every wind of, of doctrine. And um, interesting thing, when they hear this new doctrine, it makes sense to them because they, they were never actually taught. They were never taught, so they're carried off. And, and I love this word, trickery. Um, the word trickery there is the word kubia, kubia. And it comes from kubos, cubos, which is a cube, a cube. We would say a dice, a dice. So if you roll the dice, that would be a kubos or a cube. But when you say kubia, Um, it's different. It's a weighted dice. And that weighted dice, it it means for gambling or fraud. So the idea is if you you have a weighted dice, you know, and and you already know what number is going to be popping up on top because it's weighted. So you just call the number and every time you roll it, behold, behold, it's that number. So he uses this word. And the reason is that people have never been taught So somebody shows up with a wind of doctrine, and because they've never been taught, when they roll the cubia, it just makes sense. Look, it's right there, right in front of them. So I wanted to take just a few minutes today, if I could, and I wanna give you one example of this cubia that's rolled in front of people who've attended church, but they were never taught, and so now they're carried away by a wind of doctrine, because nobody ever taught them this is the truth. And so they're so easily carried away. They're immature. So to do this, and we're going to call this Christianity 101. Now, if you've been around Calvary for any length of time, this is old, old news for you. But um, Christianity 101 is this. All Christians believe that Jesus is God. You want to write that down. All Christians believe that Jesus is God. Very important. Now, where does that come from? Well, I could give you a 100 verses. I'm just gonna give you two. And I'm gonna share, the first verse comes from Isaiah. It was written 700 years before Jesus was born. No matter where you go to church, this verse is read every Christmas. And uh, so here it goes. And you're gonna, wanna, you're gonna wanna underline a couple of things. So 700 years before Jesus was born. For unto us a child is born. Gonna be born as a child. Unto us a son is given. It's gonna be a boy. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor and then he'll also be called Mighty God. Underline that. He's Mighty God. Now, I love the old King James because the old King James says the Mighty God. He's the Mighty God. And then uh, in case we miss it because it's gonna drive this point home, he's also... The everlasting father, the everlasting father. So this one, 700 years before Jesus was born, will prophesy that he's going to arrive, a child, a son, but he's gonna be more than a baby, more than a son. He's going to be the mighty God and the everlasting father. That's why all Christians believe Jesus is God. Fundamental, fundamental truth. Now, another verse. This comes from John's gospel. And in John's gospel, John begins his gospel, and he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. We'd say alongside of God. And this is gonna be the beginning of the concept of the Trinity, three and one. So he was the Word, the Word was with God, alongside, and the Word was God. Not just alongside, but he actually was God, and then it says, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became a man and he lived among us. That is Christianity 101. Now, we can all be very different on a number of things. So if you come from a um, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic, uh, Church of God, you know, we're all very different, but we all agree on on the the fundamental core doctrine is that Jesus is God. And that's the the, the core doctrine that everything else is built upon. So Jesus is God. But Paul would say, but there's a problem. There's a problem. And and here's the problem, Paul wrote. You want to underline a couple of things. Paul says, he's writing to the Corinthian church. He says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his trickery... Your minds might be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches, and you want to underline another Jesus, another Jesus whom we've not preached, you receive, or, or, or you receive a different spirit which you've not received or a different gospel which you've not accepted. He says, here's the problem. You tolerate it very well. So somebody shows up with another Jesus and you go, yeah, it's it's good, you love Jesus, I love Jesus, we're all talking about the same thing. And Paul would say, no, that's that's another Jesus, that's another Jesus. So so Paul's concern would be that they would be following another Jesus. So Christianity 101 is that all Christians believe that Jesus is God, but everyone else believes that Jesus is not God, not God. So Muslims believe that Jesus is not God. God. Our our Jewish friends hold that Jesus is not God. Jesus being God is the dividing line of everything that is Christian and everything that is not Christian. Christians believe Jesus is God. Everyone else believes that Jesus is not God. So in Christianity, there are cults that will attach themselves and call themselves Christian, but they all deny that Jesus is God they have another Jesus. Jesus. We would call that the deity of Christ. Jesus is God. And again, that's the fundamental uh, dividing line. And these people, as they, um, they pray upon people who have a church background, but nobody ever taught them the truth, so when they show up and they roll their cubia, And tell them about their Jesus They don't know the difference So they just embrace it It Seems to make sense I want to share just a couple of these uh, with you So for instance Let's say it's Saturday morning You're out mowing the lawn And you see them coming down your street And it's the Jehovah's Witnesses And uh, you run inside your house You turn off your lights You pull your blinds You hide behind the couch You've done all you can But they know you're in there (laughs) So they come to your house and, And you get into a conversation with them and you say to them, you say, well, uh, who is Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is God? They say, we don't believe that Jesus is God. Uh, that's not who, who Jesus is. Well, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is Michael the archangel, and he came to the earth and he, uh, as, a, as a man, and then he died on the cross, and he went back to heaven, and he reigns as King Jesus, but he is not God. That is another Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible, and that Jesus can't save you. That Jesus can't save you. It's another Jesus. So, you're there at your house, and uh, two guys show up on a 10-speed bicycles. They're very clean cut. <laughs> they're 19 years old, they're called elders. And they're very polite, because they really are. And uh, they say, we're here to tell you about Mormonism. We wanna tell you about Jesus and they give you a copy of the book of mormon and they give you a king james version bible and you go king james version it doesn't get any more solid than that so they give that to you and you get into a conversation and you say well who who is jesus is jesus god they say, no 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 jesus is not god well who is jesus well here's how it works out god had two unique sons Um, They're brothers. One is called Jesus, and the other one is called Lucifer. Lucifer is not a fallen angel, but he is a son of God in Mormonism. And they said, so here's how this here's how this all works out. God, Elohim, was a man on a planet in the solar system called Kolar. And there, as a man, he lived a perfect life. So living a perfect life, he got to become God of this planet. And he brought with him all of his wives and through endless celestial sex, that is not my term, that is their term. Okay, I'm just using their term. He is populating this planet. And, and uh, as he populates this planet, uh, you know, your goal is to hopefully be like him and have your own planet one day as, as a male. So the mantra of Mormonism is simply this, and here's what they'll say. As man is, God once was. As God is, man can become. That is, God was once a man, as, as man is, God once was. He lived a perfect life, he became God. And so, as man is, God once was. As God is, man can become. So your goal as a Mormon male is to live a perfect life so that one day you become uh, a God of your own planet. So Jesus is not God. Jesus cannot become God, but guess what? You can become God. That's a very different Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's another Jesus, Paul would say, and that Jesus cannot save you. Does that make sense? So you're driving around town and you go, honey, we need to get back to church. And so you drive by and you see this place and it's called the Unity School of Christianity. And you think, unity, I'm all about unity. We need more unity, we should have more. And so you, you also see the Unity School and you think, we could learn some things. It's a school of Christianity. So you decide to stop in. So you go there and uh, you say to them as you're in conversation, you say, well, well who is Jesus? is Jesus God? They would say, no, 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 no. Jesus is not God. Well, who is Jesus? They would say, well, Jesus was a man just like you, and he had the Christ consciousness in him like every one of us has. And what happened was through a number of reincarnations, Jesus worked out his lower self, we'd say his stuff, to the place where he lived a perfect life. And he ascended but Jesus is not God. He did not die on the cross for your sins. And Jesus does not save you. He simply is the example for you. So your salvation has, has to do with you being reincarnated many times, just like Jesus. And as you're reincarnated, hopefully you work out your stuff to one day you ascend. So your, your salvation has nothing to do with anybody dying on the cross, paying for your sins, because nobody can do that in, in their belief system you have to work that out through reincarnation. So that whole, it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment goes right out the window because they just hold you just keep coming back until you work it out in reincarnation. So the idea there is that that is not the Jesus of the Bible. That is another Jesus. But those groups are populated by people who grew up in church, they didn't get answers, they were never taught. Somebody comes, they roll the cubia seems to make sense as they roll it and then they embrace that and then they're carried away by every wind of doctrine. Do you find that interesting? Yes. So the, 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 the answer is not to go out and study the cults. The answer is to study this and find out who the real Jesus is. So when they show up and say, well, this is the Jesus, you go, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. And when you know it's not the Jesus of the Bible, you won't be carried off by every wind of doctrine. Well, moving on from there, verse 15, he says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. There's so much to be said there, but maturity is going to be evidenced by speaking truth with love. The mature person will always speak the truth with love. So we can't be abrasive and we can't be timid. We have to speak the truth in love. Now, there are those who will say that people who are Christians and they're abrasive, they're confrontive, they're in your face, They would say that that's actually the gifting of being a prophet. I would tell you that there's nothing in the New Testament that would say that that's what a New Testament prophet looks like, and maturity is speaking the truth in love, not being abrasive and being in people's face. Well, verse 16, he says, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to, and I've underlined, the proper working of each individual part Causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So, maturity is going to be evidenced by, write this down, finding my place and part in the body of Christ. As we grow, the body of Christ grows. And when the the body grows, when individual members grow, and it's the proper working of each individual part. And the way that we do that is we feed on God's word, we find our place, we begin to. Let God use us and, uh, and then we grow. Did you find that interesting today? Yes. Good, good, good. All right, well, we're gonna close in prayer. This completes, completes this section and we'll move on from there next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And Lord, our desire is we wanna be mature Christians not carried off by every wind of doctrine. And so Lord, we wanna know you. We wanna know the truth. Lord, give us uh, eyes to see, ears to hear, and the ability to understand who you are and how you operate. And that then Lord, use us as we take what you've given to us and we minister to others. Keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.